Episode 130, A How-To Guide to Precision Medicine. Today, I speak with Jonathan Hirsch, who is the founder and president over at SIAPS. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Provider organizations use the SIAPS Precision Medicine platform to implement precision medicine in primarily oncology, if we're talking about the current moment in time. Today, I speak with Jonathan Hirsch, who is the founder and president over at SIAPS. After debating the population health management versus precision medicine semantic brouhaha, Jonathan offers up some sage advice to anyone contemplating a move toward scalable precision medicine. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. Population health management and precision medicine. You could look at population health management, you know, and if I was feeling pugilistic, my friend, I could say that a way to achieve population health management, which could be defined as improving outcomes across populations, that like precision medicine is the verb by which you achieve population health management at scale. I guess you could say that, but now you're turning population health management into precision medicine. So now we're, we're, we're right we're back to the beginning. We're moving the goalposts, is that what right. you're saying? We're, we're, we're right back to the beginning, right? <laughs> so I think the core of this, though, is what your emphasis is. So the emphasis of precision medicine is not trying to achieve a mean for every patient. It's saying that each patient needs to be understood, fully understood. And you need to apply the right tools for that patient. And you know what? The right tools for that stage four lung cancer patient may not be the lung cancer drug. It may be the drug for colon cancer or maybe a drug for breast cancer. So when you look at a precision medicine-based approach, what you're really doing is looking at that patient as an individual. You're looking at all of the data about them and you're applying the right treatment modality for that patient rather than saying, well, that's a stage four lung cancer patient. I'm just going to treat them like every other stage four lung cancer patient. Yeah, I think I, that's the real difference. I've heard it said that what you don't want to do is treat the average patient, not the patient sitting in front of you. Exactly. I also interviewed Chris Cornu, who's the chief of strategy and innovation over at Navicent Health just a few days ago. And one of the things that he complained about with the term population health management is that if you ask one person for the definition, you'll have one definition. <laughs> it's <laughs> become a very loose term that could refer to quite a few things. Back to precision medicine then. What you just stated about treating each individual as an N of one that just inherently sounds very expensive. One of the reasons why I think the PHM, the population health management term, gained such, I was going to say notoriety, that's probably not the word that I'm using, just gained so much usage so quickly is because as we start thinking about value-based care, you need a cost-effective way to improve the outcomes across populations. So everyone's trying to figure out how to do that efficiently. So if we're now saying, all right, we've got to focus on the individual as an N of one, how do we do that cost-effectively? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And that's often something people focus on when they're talking about precision medicine. So people often talk about, well, you've got to do your sequencing tests and you've got to use more expensive drugs. And people rightfully focus on the costs of doing the test and of doing the drug, even though those costs, well, particularly the cost of the tests have fallen. But when you look at things more holistically, what you find is that precision medicine can be cost neutral or even cost saving for a better outcome for the patient. And by better outcome, I don't just mean something like survival for a cancer patient. I also mean quality of life. So when you look at precision medicine through a different lens, we actually think that precision medicine not only aligns with the value-based care paradigm, but is a core enabler for value-based care. So let me unpack that a little bit. I was just going to say. <laughs> one of the things. So one of the things that we did was uh, early on, we worked with Intermountain Healthcare, who is a leader in many ways, certainly a leader in health IT, certainly a leader in care process models and standardization, but also, of course, a leader in thinking about value-based care and pay for outcomes rather than pay for procedures. So with Intermountain, we actually collaborated on a clinical utility and cost impact study of precision medicine. And this study ran over the course of about two years, was published back in September of 2016. And one of the things that we found was that by switching stage four cancer patients onto a precision medicine-based approach, yes, the cost of the test went up. Yes, the cost of the drugs went up. But what was reduced was hospitalizations, emergency room visits, supportive care, and all of the various healthcare expenses related to caring for a patient who wasn't performing well on a standard drug. What was also reduced was the number of lines of therapy and the number of drugs that the patient had to go through before they got to quote unquote the right one. And what was also reduced was the cost of drugs that just flat wouldn't work, even if they were specialty drugs that were supposedly indicated for the patient's uh, tumor type and stage. So the net impact of all that was that there was a slight reduction in total cost of care per unit time while achieving a dramatic improvement in survival and quality of life in the patients. In fact, a doubling of progression-free survival for those patients. When you take a more holistic look at this, you know, if you're just focused on the things that you get paid for and reimbursed for today, yeah, sure, you could look at precision medicine and say, oh, that increased healthcare costs. But if we're all rethinking things in a value-based care world where we're getting paid for the outcomes and we don't so much care whether we're getting paid for using a drug or putting the patient in the hospital, when you take that step back, you know, and look at the total cost of care, Precision medicine is actually a way to control the total cost of care while achieving a better outcome. How do you do evidence-based medicine if we're dealing with ends of one in the transfer from free-for-service to value-based care? What every provider organization at some juncture starts to do is establish standards of care. Because as anyone who went through even the first hour of Six Sigma training or lean training, unless you have a standard of care, you cannot have continuous improvement. What I can't quite figure out is how do you 
establish a standard of care when every patient is different? Yeah, it's a great question. And one of the things that precision medicine does is it kind of puts you in a bit of a hole here because when you're individualizing care based on the patient, you're necessarily slicing and dicing your populations into ever smaller and smaller segments or cohorts. Um, so you've got these very small, precisely targeted cohorts of patients, you know, stage four lung cancer, EGFR, L858R variant patients who have received two lines of prior therapy that they failed, right? How many patients like that are there out there? So it's a very small, you know, subsegment that you're now creating and it introduces challenges around how you figure out the standard clinical pathway for that patient. And the solution that we and, and many others have come up for, for that is data sharing. So what you have to do is you have to get multiple health systems together to actually share and aggregate their information so you can assemble larger ends of these very small sub-segments. So one of the things that we did last year was we collaborated with Intermountain, Providence Health and Services, and Stanford Cancer Institute to launch a national data sharing network uh, for cancer called OPEN, or Oncology Precision Network. And the goal of that is to precisely solve this problem, which is getting the clinical history, the molecular information, the treatments, and the outcomes of all these patients aggregated into one system so you can actually increase your N and solve this core issue. So that effort is going really well. We're seeing uh, core benefits from that already. But in order to really tackle this, you know, we need all of the health systems and we need all of the patients to really have their data in, in data sharing networks. There are efforts to do this on a federal government level. So we were involved with the cancer moonshot around this, but we all need to collaborate and work together on this. No one organization is going to do it alone. And then what does that look like on the ground? Say I'm a physician and I have access to the open database. Do I do a search query with certain parameters for this patient and then I see what other people have tried? No, that is it, except uh, we make it even easier, which is we, we do the query for you and fill in all the parameters for you. So basically, if you're looking at a patient record, if you're, you know, if you're Joe Schmo oncologist in Nebraska and you've got a stage four ovarian cancer patient with a rare signature of molecular aberrations, we actually, through the software, can execute a query um, against the network and show all patients who are similar. And uh, the software can show the treatments that those uh, similar patients received and what their outcomes were. So how long did they live? How long were they on that treatment? How long before they progressed? You know, common measures of how the patient uh, survived um, from that therapy. When you say our system, you, you're talking about the PSYAPs. Yes, the PSYOP software, yes. How do you figure out if someone is, if a patient is a true outlier and really needs X, Y, and Z based on very substantiated evidence-based data, or whether someone is doing something just because they want to, you know, or they think that they know the right answer is probably the more operative reason? So what we're actually trying to do is eliminate the oh, I think I saw a patient like that three years ago. Let me go dig through my records and see what I did. 
what we're trying to do is instead scale that. So instead of saying, I think I saw that patient two years ago, you can now say my thousand colleagues across the country have seen 1,200 patients like this in the past six months, and here's what they did for those patients, and here's how it worked. Now, certainly, it's different than doing a randomized control trial. But the problem is you're not going to be able to do RCTs for every single combination of disease state, drug, and molecular signature. It's just not going to be possible. So we have to figure out room to use real-world evidence to inform care decisions. And you can then go on and do randomized control trials for very specific um, signals of activity, but we're never going to move the field forward if all we do is rely on purely the creation of evidence-based care pathways and RCTs. I think this has been pretty widely recognized now. So uh, the FDA, before Dr. Califf uh, left, um, they published uh, an editorial in New England Journal about real-world evidence, which was a powerful endorsement of the use of real-world evidence um, for both drug development as well as for clinical care, certainly noting the potential pitfalls of it. But I think we need to move medicine into a world that embraces the use of data and real-world evidence to inform treatment decisions. Yeah, there actually is in the IHI, which is an organization, they have a bunch of different documents which show what the difference is between a randomized clinical trial and work that's being done for continuous improvement. There was some work that they did which demonstrated that when people confuse those two things, they get stymied by paralysis by analysis, you know, it's really hard to do a randomized clinical trial. So you wind up impeding progress, which mm-hmm. could be achieved if you are thinking about it, these care improvements as continuous improvement, as opposed to you're going to publish a study. Yeah, exactly. And I think the medical community has made tremendous progress on this. So, you know, now we have the advent of so-called basket trials. So for example, Um, We're involved with uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology on their TAPER trial, which is a large basket trial to take FDA-approved therapies and use them off-label for molecularly targeted uh, indications. So we've got about 17 drugs and drug combinations that are already FDA-approved for a different condition. But now we're reusing or repurposing those drugs for a molecularly targeted paradigm outside of their current labeled tumor type indication. And you know what? It's not going to be perfect. Not every drug is going to work for every tumor type, even if the patient has that molecular aberration. But for late stage cancer patients who have no other option, this is a very good option to both try to find a treatment for those patients as individuals, but also do signal finding at scale. So you then have a signal to base your RCT off of later on down the line. So I think this is where medicine is going to move. And I think many organizations are now adopting this paradigm. So it's been pretty remarkable because in the past year, we've seen a pretty dramatic shift in the attitude of physicians and health systems around embracing this concept. So about a year ago, it was really difficult to get any physician or any health system to be willing to share cancer patients' data with others. And now it's totally the opposite. 
organizations are kind of flocking to data sharing initiatives. So, you know, we've just experienced a tremendous uptick of support for some of the data sharing initiatives that we're working on. That makes me very so, um, hopeful to hear. It's been great. I mean, the past, you know, the past year of attitude shift has been remarkable. Um, I think it's really a testament to some of the work that the Cancer Moonshot did in convening organizations together who normally don't really talk and communicate. And I, I really think that they changed the culture of data sharing and they've made data sharing the cool thing to do, dare I say. Um, <laughs> it's, it's become, it's really become an effort that's been embraced rather than something that is looked at as a challenge to the academic publisher parish paradigm. You know, rewinding the clock, you go into Intermountain Health, and I, I can ask you in a moment how you manage that because you're, you know, you, you started up this company, Psyaps, and you know, obviously Intermountain is a big, well-established healthcare stakeholder. So you go in there and you're like, "Hey, let's try this thing," <laughs> which obviously, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> includes a lot of risk. How did you get to this place? It didn't exactly happen like that. <laughs> so we had been testing out some ideas out of some thoughts and work that I, I had done in, in grad school at Stanford. And we just so happened to come across a medical oncology and genomics professor at Stanford and one of his uh, senior fellows who you know, were really interested in taking some of these concepts and making them real. So the concepts were all around you know, how do you integrate molecular and clinical data and make that useful for a physician? How do you build a decision support framework around that? How do you build a data sharing framework around that? So those were some of the early ideas and concepts that we were testing out. And the physician at Stanford, uh, Jim Ford, was super interested in, in what we were doing and wanted to test it out. And his fellow at the time, uh, Lincoln Nadalt, came up to me at a conference and said, Hey, I'm moving to Intermountain Healthcare and I'm going to start a big precision medicine initiative and I'm going to take you guys with me and we're going to do great things. That's kind of how it got started, which was a combination of the fact that, you know, we had already built out some interesting uh, software and technology. We had already done some interesting pilot arrangements with a few molecular data generating organizations. We had built a little bit of a name for ourselves, and then we just happened to be in the right place at the right time to get the, the two key people from Stanford and Intermountain both saying, hey, this is super interesting, and we have plans to go do this anyway, so why don't we work together and uh, take it from there? So before you even approached or were approached by Intermountain, you already had a proven model, basically. Like you had done pilots and you had data that showed that what you were doing was successful. Oh, no, we didn't have a proven model at all. Oh. Uh, we had some interesting prototype software and technology that, you know, that was pretty cool. But we were looking for someone who could, we could really demonstrate the clinical utility with. We had done some things in a research setting that were very interesting, but we were looking for those partners that could really work with us on proving this out clinically. And when we found Stanford and Intermountain, it was just a perfect match. Bold of them to, <laughs> to step out and try something like this. And it was even more bold at the time because we, uh, you know, we went into them and said, not only are we going to database all of your patients' genomic data, which was like a 
big stretch at the time. You know, people were very nervous about that back in 2013. But we also said, and oh, by the way, we're going to do it all in the cloud. And we're not relenting from that. So we, we were one of the first, if not the first, clinical system in the cloud at some of these healthcare organizations. And not only were we a clinical system in the cloud, but we were actually integrating fully identified clinical data and genomic information. So it's all very, very sensitive. So the fact that these groups took a bet on us early on, you know, I just, uh, I don't know how we pulled it off, but, but I guess the value of what we were proposing to them was so high that they were willing to, to take the risk on it. Yeah, it must have been. And I am 100% certain, Jonathan, that you went in with a very well-constructed proposal. ROI. Yeah. <laughs> or that. Yeah, I mean, you have to demonstrate. This is the thing that I always get persnickety about with these new health IT startups that that I see you know, coming out of incubators. You know, you've really got to demonstrate what is the ROI to the healthcare system, to the hospital, to the individual physician. So why is that physician going to not just use your software, but inevitably they're going to wind up spending time with you invested in your company from a, a mindshare perspective. So, you know, why are they going to do that? It has to be something that's so transformational um, and such a high value add that it's worth um, them doing it. So I think for us, you know, this whole conceptual shift around precision medicine was both such high clinical value add, but also so painful from an operational standpoint that these organizations were willing to turn to a young, unproven startup to help them versus turning to one of the more established you know, health technology players who did not have a solution um, in this area. So they were willing to turn to us and very thankful that they did. With the benefit of hindsight, what are the things that you really need to think about or that an organization really needs to think about when implementing precision medicine? What's your punch list? You know, it did take us a little while to crystallize the list. And we had been working on it for a while, but it really took hold in the past year that we were able to crystallize and give organizations guidance around this. And the interesting transformation that's happened in the past year is that we're kind of moving in precision medicine from the early adopter organizations to the, I would say, crossing the chasm organizations. So larger health systems who might not have a strong background in this area, but know they need to be in precision medicine and they're looking to us to guide them. So we developed this kind of punch list of things that they, uh, things that they need to do in terms of an infrastructure. So, you know, the first one is you've got to integrate your data assets together. So you need to have a comprehensive and coherent integration of your clinical data, your molecular and genomic data, treatment data, outcomes information, et cetera, so that you have a full picture of that patient and you can provide that picture to the physicians or to um, other care providers. So that's the first thing is about bringing the data together. The second element is you really do need to provide a decision support framework for physicians. So they need to, they need to understand the appropriate treatments for their patients, so treatment options, diagnostic options, clinical trials, et cetera. And Knowledge is changing so rapidly in this space. Individual physicians can't possibly keep up with it. So you really, as a health system, need to provide the physicians with a decision support framework uh, to assist them. The third item on our punch list is always the clinical workflow. So precision medicine is a 
brand new area and it does represent a disruption in the clinical workflow. So things like molecular tumor boards are now being formed and used as an interdisciplinary review process. And it's just a brand new workflow that physicians have to deal with. So you need to have a clinical workflow system um, that enables precision medicine at point of care. And then the final bit is, is, as we were talking about earlier, the learning framework. So part of the point of precision medicine is you've got to track your patient outcomes and you've got to iteratively learn from those outcomes so you can keep refining um, the care that you're delivering. So you need to have some form of framework uh, set up where you can have an individual physician learning from prior cases, but also have a multidisciplinary board actually reviewing the aggregate cases so you can draw some sort of recommendations from them and bake that into standardized processes. So those are the four elements of our tick list. If someone is thinking to themselves that they would like to learn more about precision medicine or start to implement it within their own organization in a more systematic way, where can people get more information about PSYAPs or get a hold of you? They can visit www.psyaps.com for more information. But in all seriousness, we, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of work in publications and white papers around helping health systems think through what they need to do to get on the precision medicine train, whether that is, you know, the infrastructure choices that they need to make or how they're going to align with other organizations around data sharing or any of the other core decisions that they need to make. Um, we've been doing quite a bit of work, uh, essentially consulting with and guiding health systems about how to set up their programs. And we have a wealth of resources available uh, on that that we're happy to make available to organizations. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Jonathan. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.